0: This morning, as we share in God's reading of his word, let's look at 1 Chronicles 29:10 through 18. If you have your own personal Bible and would like to read from that, that's fine. If you would like to use the one in the book right before you, the large print is page 671 and the regular print is 451. This is the prayer David prayed regarding the gifts given for the building of the temple. Let's join together in reading God's word. First Chronicles 29, 10 through 18. David praised the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly, saying, Praise be to you, O, God, o Lord, God of our Father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, O Lord, is the greatest and the power And the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you, and we have given you only what comes from your hand. We are aliens and strangers in your sight. As were all our forefathers, our days on earth are like a shadow without hope. O Lord our God, as for all this abundance that we have provided for building you a temple for your holy name, it comes from your hand, and all of it belongs to you. I know, my God, that you test the heart and are pleased with integrity. All these things have I given willingly and with honest intent, and now I have seen with joy how willingly your people who are here have given to you. O Lord, God of our fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, keep this desire in the hearts of your people forever and keep their hearts loyal. To you, may God ask his, at His blessings to the reading of His Word.
1: Drums this week, but we still don't have to be stuffy, do we? We're launching into a new series. We're calling it God's Economy. We're in a, just a few weeks going to have our Faith Promise Weekend, where we're going to ask the people of our church to give above and beyond what they already give. And you guys have been doing this every year for a long time, and I think it's pretty awesome what you have accomplished and what you've got going here through that faith promise giving. We support multiple missionaries and projects here and around the world and do some really cool stuff. You know, a lot of churches are just trying to pay the bills and make ends meet. And you guys have been generous through that faith promise giving to be able to do partner with kingdom workers all over the place. And so it's exciting that we get to do that. But I just think it's appropriate that before we go and ask for a bunch of money from folks, some people, they may, this may be their first time with us as a faith promise thing, and that whole idea may be something new to them, and so we'll talk more about it in the days to come. But I thought it'd be good to remind ourselves why it is that we give to things like that, and why we should give generously. And to do that, we're, going to just, we're not just going to talk about money, and we're not just going to talk about... Uh, Giving, we're going to actually talk about and try to get to the root of the issue. Because I feel like what we need to realize is that God's economy is completely different than the economies that we're used to. As is so often the case, God's way of doing things and the world's way of doing things are completely different, night and day. His concepts about money and stuff and our concepts about money and stuff completely different. So that's what this series is about. Let's learn about God's economy. And the first thing, let's just talk about what economics is. Alright, we'll go to social studies class today. Do you know I used to be a history teacher? The science of production, consumption, and transfer of wealth. The condition of a region or the group or a group as regards material prosperity. That's the Webster or whomever definition of economics, of economy. We live in the United States of America, who, with a GDP annually of $17.5 trillion, is the wealthiest nation in the world. Second place goes to China, who, just in the last five years, has doubled their economy to $10 trillion. That's pretty impressive. And uh, they've moved into that slot. We have the world's biggest economy because of a lot of different factors, they say. They say we have a a large population, whereas, you know, like little islands with just a few people, they're not going to have as big of an economy. They don't have that many people. So it requires a good many people. They say we've got a good many natural resources. We've got technological innovation We've got balanced demographics. You know, there's some populations that are just old or just too young. And so, you know, that messes with their economy. But solid demographics. The list could go on of, of reasons that they say, you know, have contributed to the wealth of America. But I want to suggest to you today that there is an economy out there that trumps the U.S., that trumps China, that trumps all of them combined. And it's not determined by the number of people in that kingdom. It's not even determined by the industriousness or how much they buy or sell. It's determined solely on the wealth of their king. And of course, we're talking about God's economy. And his economy outscales all the rest simply because as we're going to see it's all his in the first place there's a passage of scripture I want us to look at every week through this three week series because I think all the lessons that we need to learn about God's economy we're going to look at five different lessons over the course of the next three weeks and every one of them is tied up in this passage of scripture and I'm going to put it up on the screen and it's going to have some line, some parts that are underlined, and I'll have you read those aloud with me. But every week we'll be able to pull something from this. It's going to be kind of our, our root core text that we're going to remind ourselves of each week. But we'll look at other scriptures too. as Like the one we just read a moment ago. And I think this one's appropriate because we do live in the wealthiest nation in the world. And most of us in this room don't from day to day, think of ourselves as wealthy because we drive by houses on our way to work that look a lot bigger than ours, right? And we drive behind or in front of cars that cost a lot more than ours, and we think of ourselves as kind of middle of the road kind of folks in most cases. And there's definitely people poor, and there's definitely people richer. But by almost any standard in the world, you're rich, and I'm rich. And sometimes it helps just to wrap our minds around that. And so therefore it's appropriate what the Apostle Paul wrote to a guy he was mentoring, a pastor he was mentoring named Timothy. And he told Timothy to instruct those who are rich in this, say it with me, present world. We're going to start over because you could have done a lot better than that. But he told him to instruct those folks. And he's talking, let's just say, let's just admit he's talking to us. Because by almost any standard, when you're talking about the world as a whole, you and I are rich in this present world. So let's read this together and see what it has to say. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy, Instruct them to do good. To be rich in good works. To be generous and ready to share. Storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future. So that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Y'all did pretty good. 90% of you got an A. We're going to, obviously, there's a lot in that in just those short three verses, and a lot of principles. And we're just going to, like I say, break it down into about five things that we need to know about God's economy and how it works. And we're going to break those up over the next few weeks. Today, we're going to kind of focus in on that conceited part. Are you getting uncomfortable yet? And about God being our supplier. All right, so those are kind of the main things from this passage we're going to dwell on today. When it comes to those things, uh, there's a story that Jesus told about tenants and a, a, a guy who built a vineyard and then hired some tenants to run it and so forth, and then they were supposed to, you know, send him a part of what they produced. And uh, all that's a little bit maybe out of our wheelhouse. Uh, Here in North Louisiana, we don't have, I haven't driven by many vineyards, and you probably don't know that much about them, or you might. For all I know, you might be from Napa Valley or France or something, but something we do know about around here is pizza. All right? So we're going to do kind of a spin on, on Jesus' story, and I will try and do it justice the best we can here in North Louisiana, and maybe we'll get the general idea. So let's say that a few years back, Johnny Huntsman decided he wanted to open up a few stores in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Really nice stores in a really nice you know, part of town. So he bought up the land. Really nice, expensive land. Prime locations. He put beautiful... I mean, they lay the one over there on, on Warren to shame. I mean, just beautiful buildings. He got... Packed them out with local memorabilia that the people there would enjoy. He's got the nice fancy ovens that you have to buy and the, just the whole nine yards. The heating racks and, the, you know, it's expensive to build those things. All the computers. He puts them in. And then he hires a, a management firm there in Dallas to look after it because he's got his hands full here in North Louisiana, Arkansas, the greater area of all the stuff he's got going on here. Everything's going along fine. And then one of his finance guys comes to him and says, hey, we haven't gotten any money from Dallas this month. And he says, well, why don't you go on over there and and check on it? So he goes. But the guy never comes back. And uh, the finance department comes to Johnny again and says, we're still not getting anything from Dallas and we don't know where Fred went. And uh, so he says, well, why don't you just take the whole department over there, figure out, get to the bottom of what's going on. The whole department disappears. So Johnny says to his son, I don't even know if he has a son. Anyone know if he has a son? We'll say he does, heir to the pizza throne. And he says to his son, son, they're obviously not taking us seriously. I don't know what's going on. All this is going to be yours one day. You have the authority, you have my full authority, go over there and take care of business. Set things straight, figure out what in the world's going on and where our finance department went and so the son goes over there and the crooked management firm decides to have him killed and they figure, well, if he's out of the way sooner or later this thing's going to be ours and then we won't have to worry about it anymore now in our day and time with our legal system and judicial system and all that chances are they're not going to get away with something that crazy in Jesus' day things might have been different they didn't quite have the same systems in place Jesus told that story to the Jewish people and I think the point he was probably driving at more than anything is you've taken God's holy nation of Israel and you've treated it as your own therefore it's going to be taken from you and given to another people and friends we're that people now and we would do well to learn from those folks mistakes and realize that for instance this church is not my church as the pastor and it's not your church i don't care what positions you've held or how much money you've given over the years it's not your church it's god's church and it's important, that's a that's the main point that jesus is driving at here is you know hey guys you know this was and it, and it hit home, didn't it, for them? Because Jesus was the son that the owner of the vineyard sent. And that those tenants, crooked tenants, killed. And they did. They killed Jesus. But God took it and gave it to the whole world. His plan for salvation. His good news. And that's incredible. And today, though, we're going to generalize that a little more. And not just talk about the church. But talk about the general principle at work here. That God gives us stuff not to own, but to manage. All right? The church is an example of that. It's His church. But everything else is an example of that, too, because it's all His. And that's what we're going to look at today. Pat read for us, and, and we followed along in First Chronicles 29, a prayer of David, one of my favorite characters in all of Scripture. Quite a quite a figure. I still am waiting on them to make a, a trilogy of the life of David that does it justice. You know, and, and I'm sure Hollywood will mess it up, but I still think it would be worth. I mean, I just can't believe they haven't done it. I just think it would sell a lot of tickets, but David was a king, he was a warrior, he was also a worship leader. And David, God used him to secure the promised land. Others had led the people into the promised land, they had gotten a foothold on the promised land this land that God had promised to Abraham and his descendants but it didn't feel secure until David had been king for a while and took care of the folks who were constantly trying to overthrow and kick Israel back out and towards the end of David's reign things had gotten under control pretty well and David said God it looks like we're going to be here a little while and We're still worshiping you with that tabernacle that you gave Moses, which was designed for a people who were nomads, traveling around in the desert. We could pick up the tent and go. But we're staying put now, God. We've got this nice city in Jerusalem. Why don't we build you a temple? And God essentially said, well, David, I'd like that, but it's not your job to do it. Your job was to secure all this, and, and your son, Solomon, he'll build my temple for me but David had that idea and God permitted him to to lay the groundwork for it he wouldn't be the one to build it but he was going to do his very best to make sure that it would happen that his son Solomon would have an easy time of it he was going to prepare the way the best he could and so he called all the people together for a big giving campaign, the biggest building campaign you ever heard of, All right. and they called all these people together. And he said, first off, I'm going to give. Of my great wealth as your king, I'm going to give tremendously and generously. And then he called the leaders of the tribes forward. And they gave generously and tremendously. And the people saw the way that their leaders were giving. And they responded with similar generosity. And it was just overwhelming what all was given for the building of God's temple. And that's when David praised that prayer we read. And in this prayer, two truths about God's economy become quickly apparent. The first lesson is, everything is God's. Period. We see it in verses like verse 11, where it said, for everything in heaven and earth is yours. It doesn't leave much room for anything else, does it? Everything in heaven and earth is yours. I mean, we could just leave it at that. That covers it. But he goes on in verse 12. He says, Wealth and honor come from you. You're the ruler of all things. In your hand are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. In other words, everything is yours. And anything that we think we've earned of our own power or our own strength or our own wisdom or our own abilities... No, because all those strengths and abilities came from you too. It's all yours. You might think, if everything is God's, what does that leave for us? Not much, apparently, right? Where does that leave us? And David kind of asks and answers that question for us. He says, who am I then? And who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this because everything comes from you and we have given you only what comes from your hand what do you call someone who uses someone else's money to do something for that person whose money it is there's probably uh, several things you could call it but in essence it's a steward someone who manages someone else's money And that's the truth number two, is that he has made us stewards. He's made us stewards. For instance, uh, in verse 15 it said, we are aliens and strangers in your sight. In the New American Standard Version it says the word tenant, which is that same word that Jesus used about the guys running the vineyard. In other words, if you're an alien and a stranger in in someone else's land... Especially back then, none of it was going to be yours. It's not your land. It's their land. And you're just there, you know, to get what you can. You don't have much in the way of rights. You're just kind of at the people's mercy of the land you're living in. It's their stuff. You're just borrowing Verse 16 said, O Lord our God, as for all this abundance that we have provided for building you a temple for your holy name, it comes from your hand. All of it belongs to you. It's kind of ironic that we're building this great temple for you, but it's all yours anyway. A steward is defined as someone who is employed to manage another person's property. Someone whose responsibility it is to take care of something that's not theirs to possess. And that's what we're called to be. That's what we were called to be from the very beginning. If we back all the way up to Genesis, we find that, and just watch, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it and the Lord God commanded the man you are free to eat from any tree in the garden but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil for when you eat from it you will certainly die now does that sound to you like he was handing the deed over (laughs) that he said here it is it's yours now do with it as you will from the very beginning God said, I've made all this and I've made you and it's all mine and I'm putting you there to work it to take care of it and I'm going to give you some guidelines about what I want you to do and not do with my stuff from the very beginning God created us to be stewards Does that bother you a little bit? Like. So I work 40 hours a week. 50 hours a week. 60 or whatever you work. And you're telling me. None of it's going to be mine. I think it bothered Adam and Eve a little bit. Because ultimately. They decided as. We all kind of have. (laughs) That maybe we could own this thing maybe we could make our own rules about what we can do with all this stuff I mean God put us here to work it there lies the the great danger the great temptation that comes with being a steward because when you're put in charge of something for long you kind of want to start thinking of it as yours and that, that happens, doesn't it? You ever loan something to somebody and pretty soon they start thinking it's theirs? <laughs> How about you ever borrowed something and <laughs> pretty soon you start thinking it's yours? Uh How many of you students do you drive a car? How many of you can drive? Uh, and how many of you drive a car that you bought with your own money and it's yours? <laughs> <laughs> when I was in high school, I had I got to drive my parents' old Ford Taurus, beautiful tan, ugly car. Uh, I have to admit that there were times that I drove it as if it were mine and not theirs. You guys ever do that? (laughs) You, uh, yeah, you drive it like you own it. And uh, I just have to say, I came out lucky that it probably never came out that I was doing that. But, uh, (laughs) part of that's just being dumb, you know, because when I got a car that was my own, I still did that sometimes too. But, uh. <laughs> the great temptation that comes with stewardship is that before long, the temptation is there to start treating it as if it's yours. And it's the great temptation that we didn't resist. God gave us a great setup. He said Enjoy it. And but we wanted to say, yeah, we want it, we want it for us. We want it to be mine, mine, mine. But the cold hard truth is, first of all, everything is God's. And second of all, we are stewards of it. What does this mean for us? How, what can we do with this this week in our life? How can we apply it? Well, I think it's just going to start with just coming to grips with the fact that we need to stop trying to get what's mine and start trying to manage what's his. Now, how we do that, how we manage it is, is a topic for the next two weeks. That we'll get into because it's more than enough to to swallow here just to get it through our heads that we need to stop trying to get what's mine and I need to try to start looking at it as managing what's his. What do we do with our money? here's what we do in a nutshell, right? At least in America, we work, work, work and we save, save, save and we spend, spend, spend so we can get what's mine, mine, mine I mean, that's the cycle that we operate in, right? And sometimes you can throw in we go into debt, debt, debt (laughs) to get what's mine, mine, mine Well, you can just swap the save and the debt if you need to That's, that's what most of us have done statistically, that's what they say. I'm not saying that's what most of you have done. I don't know what you've done, but I'm just telling you, statistically, (laughs) most folks in America have swapped the saving and the debt thing. (laughs) So, our aim has become, this is just what we do, typically, we try to figure out what's going to please us. And the way we usually go about doing that is by looking around us and seeing what is everyone else doing. Right? It's the whole keeping up with the Joneses thing. Honey, Jim Bob got a new hunting camp. It is nice. He has a nice hunting camp. You know where I've been going. It ain't nice. I need one like he's got. Or at least I need a buy in and get my share of his <laughs> all right. Or or we see, you know, our buddy gets the seventy five inch TV and we say, Man, I could never have the guys over for the Super Bowl on my sorry little forty eight forty eight inch TV. Are you kidding me? Embarrassing. That's four feet of TV <sighs> But that's the way we think, isn't it? Ladies, I'm not gonna let you off the hook. You you look and see, man, she's always got the coolest purses. <laughs> Honey, why won't you ever let me buy those coach purses? And we say, what purses? <laughs> you mean the hundred dollar ones? No. Five hundred? What are they going for now? I don't know. Oh goodness. Have mercy. Okay. But we do it, don't we? We, We've got to have the car. We've got to have the house. We've got to measure up. We've got to get what's mine. (laughs) Instead of the other way around. And here's what's funny about that. Where does the mind, mind, mind philosophy lead? It leads to wanting more, 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 right? It leads to jealousy, comparison games. It leads to greed. It leads to not spending time with the people that you love and care about because you're too busy either trying to get more, more, more or trying to manage what you already got. on the other hand if we were to try and stop trying to get what's mine and and we were going to start trying to manage what is God's, it just changes the whole mindset and we find a lot more contentment and we don't get into the whole comparison game, we're just managing what's his, what he's trusted to us we're able to be a lot more generous to share Therefore, we make more friends. <laughs> I mean, just look at the life difference. I mean, have you ever seen someone that chased the mind, mind, mind thing and it worked out great for them in the end? I mean, sometimes we think that it does, but in most cases, we see those people come crashing down or their families just blow up. Or, <laughs> you know, it gets to the point where we pity people who win the lottery. Or we pity I mean, we don't say that we do, but we do. Because more cases than not, they blow it all and their life's in shambles after it. Or the people who hit sudden fame, you know, we pray for people like the Duck Dynasty folks because how are they going to hold it all together? I mean, we all think that, don't we? How can anybody come into that kind of wealth and hold it all together through the next generations to come, especially? and we see people who hit it big and in the pop industry or whatever and they shoot up like a rocket and then pretty soon they come crashing down and yet we all still want that we all still want what's mine, mine, mine when all along God's way even though it doesn't sound that glorious because in his way it's all his and we're just managing it and yet it leads to a lot more happiness doesn't it? it's amazing how it works that way in God's kingdom. Here's something else to consider this week as you're weighing whether you're going to buy into this whole everything's God's and I'm just a steward thing cuz I know it doesn't sound that glorious, but the folks who chase the mind mind mine in this life we all know that none of them take any of it with them. In the end, they end up with nothing but hell. And I mean that seriously, not just in the phraseology of it. But what God promises to the people who say, yes, God, it's all yours. And I just want to do the best job I can of managing what you've given me. To those people, God says, you're going to be co-heirs with my son, Jesus Christ. In other words, we're heirs to the throne of God in a sense. We get a piece of the pie in the end. And that little piece of the pie, even after it's divided amongst all the believers everywhere, is, I imagine, still going to be a little more significant than the U.S. economy as a whole. I mean, God's God, right? And for some reason, even though he didn't have to promise us a thing, much less even just a comfortable retirement when we get to heaven, he says, no, I've adopted you into my family. I've made you co-heirs with my son, Jesus Christ. And that's what's promised to them. And when you consider all that, when you consider the long-term ramifications and even just the short-term ramifications of choosing the way that we normally operate and the way this world operates versus the way that God operates. It just doesn't make any sense to continue doing what we've always done. And when you think about it, it makes you want to stop trying to get what's mine. And it makes you want to start trying to just manage what's His. Because you see the difference that it'll make in your life and in your family's life From generations forward even. You could change your family tree when it comes to money. Just by choosing. To stop trying to get what's mine, mine, mine. And to admit it's all his anyway. And to start seeing it as what can I do with what you've given me God. And when you do that you're going to start asking some crazy questions. And your friends are going to look at you funny because... Instead of asking how big a TV you should get, you'll be thinking, should I even get a TV? I mean, is the content I'm going to put on there even of any spiritual value to me, or is it really going to be of the opposite of value to me? So why am I investing in that? I mean, we've been wrestling with this stuff off and on over the last several years in our walk with God. You know, this, I don't, for most people, this sort of thing isn't the kind of thing that you just—you come to a realization today, and tomorrow you go out and sell all your stuff and give to the poor. Right? <laughs> That's not what most of us experience. But if you pray and ask God to help you start working through this, and you start having tough conversations with your spouse about this stuff, then you start wrestling with things, and you start slowly having those conversations, like. Do we even need a TV? (laughs) You know, those kinds of conversations. There's a bunch of those. Do we even need a new car? Is that the best way to spend our money? Or would there be something that we could do with that money that would be a lot more rewarding kingdom-wise? Hey, why don't we just ask God what he thinks? And it's not to say that you never get anything nice again. But the motives from which you buy that something nice is no longer, well, they have a nice one. And what you do with those things that you have changes from this is for my recreation and my enjoyment when I get done working so hard all week I get a little R&R I like to get my lemonade and enjoy my big screen and I slip on my designer house slippers or whatever you do. And instead you start asking all this nice stuff that I have the TV, all of it it's not mine God gave it to me. How can I use it for him? I have this nice house. What could I do with it that would be of some kind of kingdom value? I have this car with 15 seats in the back because that's how they make those SUVs now. What could I do? Who could I give a ride to? I've got this truck. Who's needing help? You know what I'm saying? It just changes the perspective on stuff when you see it all as God's stuff and not as yours and we're going to talk a lot more about the how we manage God's money like I said in the weeks to come but I just want to challenge you with (laughs) I mean it is big enough to wrestle with for one week isn't it just this idea and the reminder that none of it's ours I think it was easier for them to get that back then because their economy was based on like how many sheep you have and obviously God made all the sheep you know they could get that now we deal with money and, and we say, hey, I got this dollar bill at the bank. It's mine. You know, God didn't create the dollar bill. You know, right? Or did He? But, and so, but, so we have to step back a little further, as David did in that prayer, even, and say, all the strength, all the ability, all the honor, all the creativity, all of it came from you. Not just the stuff. But even just the ability for us to conceive of the designs to make the stuff. It all came from you. So it's all yours. No matter how hard I worked this week, it's all yours. Because you gave me the strength to work in the first place. So what do you want me to do with it, God? Let's pray that prayer together this morning. God, this is a really big concept, especially for us who live in the wealthiest nation in the world. And God, we, we can admit we struggle with stuff sometimes. We struggle with greed sometimes. We struggle with being a little bit conceited in how we manage our finances sometimes. Because the world and everything in it tells us that we ought to be looking out for me. We ought to be looking out for number one. We ought to be making ourselves comfortable as much as we can. We ought to be getting as much pleasure out of life as we can. And yet, God, when we look at their lives, we don't see pleasure. When we look at our lives, we don't see it, as long as we're chasing after what we want. So, God, give us the strength. Give us the ability, through your Holy Spirit's power, to see things in a whole new light. To see things, everything that we possess Not just our money, not just our stuff, but our abilities. All of it as yours, God. And help us to ask and wrestle with the hard questions of what would you have us do with it? Instead of always just asking what do we want to do with it? Lord, we pray this hard prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen.